welcome back to Bible Basics webinar. We're glad to have presenting with us tonight uh, Joel Suntz and David Wisniewski. And uh, we'll just introduce our two topics tonight. Joel is going to take the first half of our webinar tonight and talk about the prophet Jeremiah. And then David's going to take over in 15 or 20 minutes and talk to us about prophecy fulfilled in ancient times. So welcome, everybody. And we'll ask uh, Joel to going to consider a couple of other prophets this evening. Uh, specifically a prophet named Ezekiel and another prophet named Daniel. But before we get into that, it's interesting to note this statistic, 1,817. According to a book called the Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, that's the number of prophecies that the Bible contains. That's incredible, the amount of foretelling and forthtelling that the scriptures have. And that's made up of 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament. We considered last week that there were hundreds of Bible prophecies that pointed forward to the Messiah, that pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at just a few of those and saw how they were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah and how they were fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some have estimated there's over 350 prophecies just about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And that's just about his life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension to his father. That doesn't even include all the prophecies that speak about our Lord Jesus Christ's return to the earth and establishment of his kingdom. So a super exciting topic that we're going to be considering this evening as we start this theme, which will carry on for the next three weeks by God's grace, and we're really happy that you've chosen to spend this time together with us this evening. Well, there's two primary ways in which God revealed events that were going to take place in the future in the scriptures. We'll go to the first one just briefly. Our intention is not to delve deeply into this first prophecy, but just to demonstrate one of the ways that God reveals the future in the Bible. And that is by vision. And so in this case, in the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 2, it was a Gentile king, the king of Babylon, which was the greatest nation that existed in its time. Um, and the king of that nation was given a vision by God. We may remember the story from Sunday school days, if we attended Sunday school, because it's quite spectacular. The king has a dream. His dream is very frightening. And when he wakes up, he wants to test his wise men because he's not quite sure that they're telling the truth when they come to him with their spirits of divination, their witchcraft and their wizardry and the magic tricks that they've been able to employ before him. So he provides a test. He doesn't tell any of his wise men what his dream was because he wants to know for sure the dream was so shocking and so terrifying for the king, he wants to understand that the explanation he's getting is truth. And so he won't tell his wise men what the dream is. When word comes to Daniel that he's very upset, he, he in fact issues a decree to put to death all the wise men in Babylon because no one is able to come up with an answer. God, Daniel prays to his God, our God, and God reveals to Daniel what vision he gave to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
And so these are the words of Daniel speaking to the king of Babylon, to this man of incredible power. And he says, this is the dream that you had. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And he tells the king that he saw that image standing until a stone was cut without hands. You can see a picture of that stone here blazing out of the sky. And it says it smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. What Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is that in fact this image represents four kingdoms of men. And that the head was in fact Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, the nation that was represented by the gold head. And this head of gold uh, is described as such because Babylon had the most uh, absolute power of any nation that would come after it. Total power resided in the head of that nation, in Nebuchadnezzar. Whereas as you progress through the different nations that are represented by the other metals of the image, the power was weakened. It wasn't just the king or the ruler or the president or the prime minister of those nations that had ultimate power, but he shared those powers with other people that were in his cabinet, so to speak. And so Daniel lays out for Nebuchadnezzar that he's the head of gold on this image, and that following Babylon, there would be another empire that would stand up. And later on in the prophecy of Daniel, it's revealed that that would be the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire, that would follow the Babylonian Empire. And that after the Medo-Persian Empire, another empire would come, that is the Greek Empire, that would start with the rise of Alexander the Great, who would take over the Persians. And finally, the fourth world empire that would exist would be the Roman Empire. And then lastly, in the feet, there was feet that were both of iron and clay, indicating that influences from that Roman Empire still exist amongst the kings of the world when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that stone cut out without hand, returns and smites that image on its feet, breaks up the image, grinds it to powder, and becomes a mountain which fills the whole earth. And so what a privilege this was for this Gentile king to receive this image. It caused him great fright as he first received it, but as the explanation was unfolded, he was actually being given by God a, a history, a preview of the history that would unfold through time from his days, the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right through to our day, because we live in the time period of that iron and clay. We live in the time period in which the Lord Jesus Christ, that stone cut out without hands, will smite the image at its feet and break it to pieces and grind it into powder and become a mountain, become a kingdom on its own right, a kingdom which will fill the whole earth. So that's one way in which God revealed prophecies. And those prophecies have almost all been uh, concluded. They've all come to pass. We know from history that these were the empires that rose 
After the Babylonians came the Medians and the Persians. After them came the Greeks, and after them came the Romans. And there's two legs, even the, the little details that might seem meaningless. In reality, we know that the Roman Empire was split between the East and the West. And so it's symbolized by the two legs of the man. And now we come down to the era, our day, of ten toes with Roman influence. Roman influence in our laws, Roman influence in our calendars, uh, Roman influence in many aspects of our society. So there's one way that God provides prophecy through a vision. It happened to many people. Jacob had prophecies revealed to him in a vision. Uh, Abraham had things that were revealed to him in a vision while he slept. Uh, Daniel had more things that were revealed to him. He'll have another dream in Daniel chapter 7 that again confirms more details about these four kingdoms and about the final conflict that will take place. The other way God reveals his word or reveals Bible prophecy is the spoken word. And we want to look in this situation to another prophet, the, the prophet Ezekiel. He's the prophet in our Bible, as we turn through the pages of it, that comes just before the prophet Daniel. Ezekiel was a prophet who was carried from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon by the Babylonians. So there he is in Babylon, and while he's in Babylon, he issues prophecies for the Jews that were back in the land still because not all of them were carried away at once. He issues Bible prophecies for the Jews that were also in captivity in Babylon. He tells them, for example, they should build homes, that they should plant gardens, because they're going to be in Babylon for quite some time. And then he also issues prophecies against the nations that surrounded Israel. And so we see prophesies against the nation of Ammon, which was just to the east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. And he tells Ezekiel, who's called son of man, set thy face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. And so he would issue a decree, a prophecy against the Ammonites. Later on in Ezekiel 25, God tells Ezekiel to tell Moab that he would execute judgments upon them that they might know that he is the Lord. Further on, again, in Ezekiel 25, he prophesies against Edom. Edom, Ammon, and Moab were all countries that were east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. And in fact, these were countries that were made up of people that were related to the children of Israel that dwelt on the other side of the river. They were related through Lot in Ammon and Moab's case, and they were related through Isaac in Edom's case, Edomites came from Esau, the brother of Jacob. So these were family members, and they were being judged or prophesied against by Ezekiel. He prophesies against the Philistines, today known as the Palestinians, but before were known as the Philistines. And the Philistines, although the Palestinians occupy the same territory, it's not descendants of those people. Um, but some of the prophecies that are spoken of against the Philistines will actually have their final fulfillment uh, against the Palestinians. Then a prophecy which we're going to dive in a little deeper on is a lamentation or a prophecy against Tyre. 
Again, he's to prophesy against Zidon. So Tyre and Zidon, those were countries that were to the north of Israel. These are all Israel's neighbors, and they're being judged. There's prophecies against them because of their treatment of Israel. And then Egypt, of course, was on the southwest of Israel, down below them. And again, Ezekiel is told, Son of man, set thy face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. But let's drill in a little bit deeper into just one of these prophecies by the spoken word, this prophecy against Tyre. Just want to highlight a few passages that, that, are, um, that are brought out in this prophecy that lasts for two and a half chapters in Ezekiel. First of all, it says that the city of Tyre, who had previously been friends with Israel, mocks Jerusalem's calamity in 600 BC. So when the Babylonians started coming up against Jerusalem and attacking Jerusalem and started carrying away captivity, uh, captives, Tyre, who had always been an ally and a friend of Israel, was now mocking them. And so God says that he would bring upon Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then he says that he would set engines of war against his walls with his axes. He would break down the towers. They would make a spoil of thy riches and make a prey of thy merchandise. But going on, we find that there's several attacks that happen against Tyre. They would break down thy walls and destroy thy pleasant houses and lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. What an odd prophecy. Now, Tyre was a coastal city. And here we're being told that the stones of the houses and the walls of that city would end up, and even the dust would end up in the midst of the water. And then finally, I will make thee like a, the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken of it. Spoken it, saith the Lord God. So let's just take a look at what happens with Tyre in history. Tyre was founded, uh, it's a, a very old city, around 2750 BC. Very old city. This goes back as far as um, Israel's history after the flood. According to Herodotus, um, it appears on monuments as early as 1300 BC. The city of Tyre was known for its production of dye. Uh, they held the balance of power with the Phoenicians at sea, being a, a port city, a coastal city. And there was an alliance that I made reference to between Hiram, one of the earlier kings of Tyre, and King David. And in fact, it says that Hiram was ever a lover of David. They were great friends and great allies. And Hiram loved Israel so much that he dedicated his people and his resources to helping build the temple that Solomon, David's son, would build. Well, then we find, as we skip forward in history, that after Jerusalem was attacked, and there's Tyre mocking Jerusalem for the calamity that's come upon them, shortly after that, Nebuchadnezzar actually comes up against Tyre, just as Ezekiel had prophesied. So Ezekiel's prophecy was probably around 590 BC, only four years before Nebuchadnezzar comes up. So this was a prophecy that was fulfilled in very short order at first, just four years after he initially makes the prophecy. 
But in that first attack, the, the engines of war were brought against the city. And amazingly, Tyre was able to hold off Nebuchadnezzar's siege during that time. But then we skip forward about 250 years and Alexander the Great comes up against the city again. And what happens is that the first city, so the city of Tyre was on the coast, and we're going to see on a map in just a moment that when the, the inhabitants of Tyre realized that they were not going to withstand the siege of Alexander the Great, they moved their city to an island that was just off the coast. So that when Alexander finally got through the walls of the city, nobody was there because they'd all gotten into boats and they'd gone across to this island, which also had fortified cities. And they thought that they were pretty confident that they would be able to now survive against Alexander the Great because they were on an island. And how hard is it to bring your boats up against a fortress that's on an island? Well, in fact, one of Alexander's former generals began his own siege of Tyre another 17 years later. And within a year, he takes that city. But how he does it, friends, is incredible. And it's an incredible fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Let's take a look at this on a map. So there's the, there, there's the portion of old Tyre that we can see on the right side of our map. That was the portion that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had come up against and sieged for 13 years. But because they had access to, to, the, uh, to the port, they had plenty of access to, to seafood, to fresh, not to fresh water, but seafood. And uh, they were able to sustain living while Nebuchadnezzar was outside their walls. When Alexander the Great came up, they realized that the walls were going to fall. And so they went out to this island by boat and they inhabited some fortresses that were contained, that were built on this island. So what Alexander the Great did um, after he did destroy the city, actually what his, um, what his general did was he took and made the equivalent of bulldozers and he scraped all of the walls of the city and all of the houses and all the rocks and everything that was there in the old city of Tyre. And he actually scraped them out into the ocean and he built with all of the rocks and the stones and the timbers, he built a causeway between the old city of Tyre and the new city of Tyre. And consequently, they were able to go across on land and they were able to take the city of Tyre. So now let's go back. Well, here's the uh, here's the uh, bullet points. He takes the rubble, pushes them into the sea, builds a causeway um, so that the siege engines can make their way out to the island, and then finally takes the island fortress and destroys it. So let's go back to our Bible verses in Ezekiel 26. Remember, we said that when uh, this prophecy was made in about 590 BC, just a short period of time later. Nebuchadnezzar would come up and there would be a partial fulfillment of these words um, because Ezekiel had specifically named the king of Babylon and said that he would come up. And indeed, he did set engines of wars against the city, but he did not take the city. It wasn't until Alexander the Great came that he was finally able to reduce the city to rubble. But as we saw, by the time he broke through the walls, they had established themselves strongly on the island. And so Alexander the Great literally scrapes the old city 
and pushes it into the sea to form that land bridge, that causeway that we saw. And there's the verse in Ezekiel 26. They shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. How precise were these words fulfilled in history? It's almost as if Alexander the Great was reading the guidebook on how to conquer the city of Tyre from the prophecy of Ezekiel. And then finally it says in Ezekiel 26 and verse 14, I will make thee like the top of a rock, and thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more, for I the Lord have spoken it. And we're going to see a picture in just a minute of how that territory is still used by fishermen today to lay their nets upon to dry. All of this happened in history, but years before and hundreds of years before it happened, the Bible had predicted that it was going to happen. And not just predicted that it was going to happen. It wasn't just about a prediction. It was a prophecy that those who saw those things come to pass would know that the Lord is God, that he is powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing. And if what he has said in Bible prophecy is true, then the other prophecies that have yet to come to pass in the scriptures, as will be considered in a couple of weeks from now, God willing, will surely come to pass with the same precision that these things came to pass. And if we look at the city of Tyre through Google Maps, um, we see that, in fact, just as it was prophesied, it shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. And there's a photo down below of fishermen spreading their nets on the area that used to be the city of Tyre. With what precision does our God foretell the future? And does he not do it, friends, because he wants us to learn from his word. He wants us to be impressed when we see these things to come to pass and have confidence in the word which he has spoken before. Not just confidence in his Bible prophecy, but confidence that the whole word of God is indeed the truth. All right, well, hopefully uh, we've resolved our issues now and we can pass uh, the class back over to Joel. Thank you, David, and thanks everyone for your patience. As I try to sort out rural internet, can always be uh, exciting times. Hopefully you can see and hear me now as I've relocated within my office. Yes, perfect. Excellent, thank you. So I'm sure that you probably didn't get much of what I said before, so let's start at the beginning. And uh, it actually works rather nicely for me to piggyback on David's subject this evening because not only has he given us a brief overview of the role of prophets in scripture, but he's actually taken us to Ezekiel, one of the contemporaries of Jeremiah. And of course, Jeremiah is who we want to consider tonight. So we're going to try and establish who Jeremiah was, when and to whom did he prophesy, and what was his message? So one of the key verses we chose, and we could have picked many, is on the screen there from Jeremiah 21. And it's the overarching theme of Jeremiah's prophecy about destruction that would come against Judah in the form of the nation of Babylon. But we're not going to look at that specifically yet. We will get there. First, we want to consider who Jeremiah was. 
Now, James, in his epistle, writes of the prophets in James chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, Take my brethren the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. So according to scripture, not only do prophets speak the word of God in the name of God, but they also provide an example of suffering affliction, often because of the message of God's word that they were delivering to the people. Now, Jeremiah is perhaps the greatest example in the Bible of a prophet who suffered affliction because of the message that he was delivering to the nation of Judah. Now, if we were to turn to Jeremiah 1, and we've got part of the, uh, the first chapter here on the screen, we can see that Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah from a town called Anathoth in the land of the tribe of Benjamin, which was at five miles or so just outside of Jerusalem. So just about five miles from the temple. And that's interesting because Jeremiah was actually from a family of priests, but he wasn't chosen to be a priest. Rather, God chose him, we can see in these verses, to be a prophet. In fact, God says in verse five on the screen there that he'd chosen him before he was born. He says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, bolded on the screen, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And as David looked at, prophets were often sent to a specific nation. In the case of Jeremiah, it was Judah. But just like Ezekiel was a prophet to the nations around Judah, well, so too was Jeremiah. Now, before we dig deeper into Jeremiah's prophetic mission and his message, it's helpful to remind ourselves of a bit of the history of the nation of Israel. Now, approximately 300 years or so before Jeremiah and his prophecy, highlighted in red there on the chart or the timeline, the nation of Israel was one united nation that consisted of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes are named after the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, following Solomon, who was the last king of the United Kingdom, the kingdom was turned over to his son, Rehoboam, and he wasn't a particularly great king. And it was in the days of Rehoboam that the kingdom was divided. What happened was Rehoboam kept two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which is referred to as the kingdom of Judah in the south, and the other 10 tribes were given to Jeroboam, and that's the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, this is important for our considerations because Jeremiah was a member of the two tribes referred to as Judah, because the tribes, um, when you looked at Judah compared to Benjamin, Judah was much larger, therefore the name of the nation. Now, the 10 tribes that made up the kingdom known as Israel actually ceased to exist in the time of Jeremiah. The next highlighted section on the screen there, you'll see about 200 years later after the time of Solomon, after the kingdom was divided, we come to a time period when Israel, the 10 tribes in the north, had become so wicked and they were so disobedient to God's laws that he brings the nation of Assyria, which was the superpower of the time, against Israel and actually carries them away captive. That's why that yellow line on the timeline there or the chart stops and it doesn't actually continue below where time continues on. But the green line is the kingdom of Judah, which continues this is the kingdom of Judah and the two tribes that were left. Now, this Assyrian captivity happens in the days of Hezekiah. 
And the nation of Israel was warned by prophets like Isaiah and Micah that if Judah didn't, or rather if Israel didn't change their ways, they would be taken into captivity. Well, Judah was given the same warning. In fact, if we were to turn up, and you don't need to look this up, I'll read it for you. It's one of the verses from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 11. God says specifically to Judah, Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria, that was the capital of Israel, and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? So what happened to Israel? Well, they were carried away into captivity because of their wickedness. That was the same punishment that was looming over the nation of Judah. Now, luckily for Judah, Hezekiah, the king at this time, was perhaps the greatest reformer ever to reign in Judah. And even though the Assyrians tried to defeat the kingdom of Judah and to capture Jerusalem, well, God fought on their behalf and killed 185 Assyrian soldiers that were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem in one night. And he spared the nation of Judah. Now, the record of Hezekiah, it's a fascinating story, but it's not the subject of our study tonight. But it's relevant when we come to look at the life of Jeremiah because we're approximately 100 years after the time of the captivity of Israel. And this was the same time, you know, 100 years before Jeremiah, when the nation of Judah was warned to flee from wickedness and specifically to flee from idolatry and instead to serve God, or they would face the same destruction, the same captivity that Israel did. Now, here's an example of one of the visions, as David had pointed out, that were often given to the prophets. Here's a vision that's given to Jeremiah right at the beginning of his prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 1. This is the vision of the seething pot. From Jeremiah 1 at verse 13, And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I see a seething pot, and the face thereof of the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, an evil shrake forth upon all the inhabitants of the land, that is, the land of Judah. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. So here in this vision, Jeremiah is given this scene of a boiling pot that faces towards the north. And what God reveals to Jeremiah in this vision is that the seething pot represents the judgments of God that are going to be poured out upon the nation of Judah because of Judah's wickedness. And in specific uh, detail, it's their, their worship to false gods and their worship of idols. Now, the mention of judgment is going to be of particular significance in Jeremiah's prophecy. Here, God doesn't elaborate on who the method of judgment was other than defining them as the nations to the north. But as you continue through Jeremiah's prophecy, God is going to reveal exactly who it is. You see, if you lived in Israel and you looked north, what you would see was the superpower that was rising at that time. And it was the nation of Babylon. In fact, we'll come to see on the next slide that God describes Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as his servant. Even though Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, doesn't worship Yahweh, God still calls him his servant. And what he means is that Babylon, under the command of Nebuchadnezzar, was going to be the vehicle or the tool that God would use to judge the nation of Judah. 
And ultimately, it's this same nation of Babylon, the same King Nebuchadnezzar, that would take Judah into captivity because of their wickedness. Now, the message of Jeremiah was that this nation of Babylon was coming. Wickedness had reached its peak, and there was nothing that could be done to stop it. And so the nation needed to pray that they'd be carried away into Babylon. They needed to set up a new life. They needed to get comfortable because they were going to be there for 70 years. And they needed to pray for the peace of Babylon. Now, that was counterintuitive to the Jews who have always been taught to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that posed a problem for Jeremiah, the prophet. On the screen, we have yet another example of a prophecy concerning the destruction of this nation, Judah, at the hand of Babylon. And here's the reference that we spoke of a second ago. Jeremiah 25 and verse 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all the nations round about, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Now these words of prophecy, they were not going to be easy for the nation of Judah to hear. These were God's chosen people. They had been subject to divine providential care. God had cared for them through the wilderness wanderings and brought them into the land. They felt that this was their right to be here. And now God was going to destroy this land and bring the people into captivity. And that message was not going to be easy for Jeremiah to speak because essentially this message would have sounded like treason. It would have sounded like Jeremiah was aligning with the enemies of God rather than the people of God. Now, despite the difficulties of this message, time and time again, Jeremiah was going to need to summon up the courage to speak the words of God to the people. So God, in the very first chapter, when he calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, he says to him in the verses on the screen, Jeremiah 1, verses 17 to 19, Therefore, gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto all them that I command thee. But be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city, and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. What God is saying to Jeremiah is, don't be afraid of the people, Jeremiah. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you like this strong, well-defended city with brazen walls. But don't be deceived because, well, the people, they're going to oppress you. They're going to attack you. It's not going to be easy and it's going to hurt. But I'm going to be with you, Jeremiah, and I won't let this thing prevail over you. Now, before we consider some of the examples suffering I would have endured in his ministry as a prophet of God. Just a side note, one of the challenging aspects of the prophecy of Jeremiah is that unlike other prophets, such as Isaiah, that we've already mentioned, Jeremiah's prophecy is not in chronological order. And so we need to look at specific sections and specific details to try and uncover where these events might have fit into the narrative or the timeline. Now, that might sound like a challenge, and it might sound like a negative, but what it does is it applies kind of a universal structure to the prophecy of Jeremiah. What that means is that 
Well, the words in the prophecy of Jeremiah apply just as much to his time as it does to our time. So this is a message that we can take and apply in our lives as well. So with that in mind, with the fact that it's not in chronological order, this prophecy, let's look at just some of the events that this poor prophet would have endured. In Jeremiah 11, his own family tries to kill him. In Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah is forbidden by God to marry or even to have children due to the destruction that was going to come upon the nation. And just as a side note, that was not a normal commission of a priest or of a prophet. But God says that times that are coming are going to be so violent that you don't want to have a family. You do not want to raise children in that environment because of the judgment and the destruction and the bloodshed that's coming. Jeremiah 20, we read of Pasher, a governor of the temple that smites Jeremiah and places him in the stocks on the way to the temple. In Jeremiah 26, it's the people that want to kill Jeremiah, but thankfully, because of the words of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, he explains to the people that, well, there was this prophet named Micah who prophesied at the time of Hezekiah that we looked at earlier, and this prophet gave a similar message of coming destruction, but Hezekiah didn't try to kill him. Instead, they listened to him and they repented. And so Ahiakim is able to persuade the people not to put Jeremiah to death. And instead, the nation then turns their eyes to another prophet named Jerijah, who also prophesied about destruction against Judah. And he was so afraid of this nation that he actually fled to Egypt in fear of his life. And some of the men of Judah go down to Egypt and they extradite him back to Judah, where he is then murdered. Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah is told by God to put yokes and bands around his neck, and he actually walks around with these implements of imprisonment as part of his prophecy for two whole chapters. Jeremiah 32, he's put in prison. Jeremiah 36, we have the burning of Jeremiah's scroll by the king, and in order to arrest Jeremiah, but thankfully God conceals him. In Jeremiah 37, we read of Jeremiah being cast into a dungeon for speaking out against the wickedness of the king. And then he's ultimately released. In chapter 38, Jeremiah is cast into a miry pit and left to die. And finally, he's saved by Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian. And in Jeremiah 39, we have the record of the captivity of Babylon, which is so fierce and so violent. We read details like Zedekiah the king, who has to watch all of his sons die, and then his own eyes are plucked out. Now, Jeremiah is spared from that violence. that He's sent back to Judah. But certainly his life and his ministry was one of suffering. And one of the things I think that makes Jeremiah such an interesting prophet is how relatable he is for you and I. Now, Jeremiah always obeys the words of God. And he always summons, summons the courage to speak to the people. But he's not without his doubts. Look at the words on the screen here from Jeremiah 20. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me. And I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violent and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart, as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Verse 14, Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. 
this poor prophet, Jeremiah, endured such hardship, such oppression, and such violence that he challenges God and even says, curse the day that I was born. But what makes Jeremiah such a remarkable example is that while he approaches God to understand his methods, while he questions God for the approach that ends, Jeremiah always obeys the word of God. And he always proclaims God's message to the people. Jeremiah even says, I didn't want to speak those words. I tried to keep them shut up within me, but it was like fire within my bones. I had to speak. I had to get those words out. He always obeys and delivers the message that God gives him. Now, there is no lack of mournful, sorrowful, and sad situations in the record of Jeremiah's life. But there are also a few rays of hope that shine through. For instance, in Jeremiah 24, we read of the record of the good figs. There's two groups in the nation, the good and the bad figs. And the good figs is the faithful remnant, those that obeyed God and would be saved and preserved. That's one shining record that comes through, one ray of hope. But another one is one of my favorite parts in the record of Jeremiah. And that's the story or the account of the faithful family of the Rechabites from Jeremiah 35. And the Rechabites were one of very few faithful families within Judah at the time of Jeremiah. And as a result, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to use the Rechabites as an example to the nation. I want you to bring them and put them in the temple, and I want you to offer them wine to drink so that the nation can see how they'll respond. And this is how they respond in Jeremiah 35, verses 6 to 8. But they, the Rechabites, said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Now those rules might seem a bit extreme in our views, but they're not meant to be. You see, these rules were actually all crafted in direct response to the sins of a king of Israel named Ahab. And he was the most wicked king to reign in the nation of Israel. Now, we don't have the time to investigate that tonight, but if you're interested, it certainly is an intriguing story that occurs in 1 Kings chapter 16 through to chapter 22. And that king is the reason Jonadab made these rules. Now, God is going to use this family, the family of the Rechabites, and their rules to emphasize the point. That Jonadab, the son of Rechab, commanded these things, and here we are 240 years after Jonadab lived, and his family still obeying the commandments of their great-great-great-grandfather. But he's only human. On the other hand, we have the nation of Israel who were not obeying the commandments of their heavenly father, despite all of the wonderful blessings and all of the divine protection that they'd received from him. Now, to me, it's wonderful to think that in such a time of wickedness and idolatry and self-indulgence, that here we have this wonderful family standing strong for their beliefs and for the ways of God. And as a result, look at the blessing that God gives them in Jeremiah 35, verses 18 to 19. We read, Because ye, the family of the Rechabites, have obeyed the commandments of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according unto all that he hath commanded you, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Isn't that remarkable that because of the faithfulness of this family, because of their obedience over a span of over 200 years, God says that you will not lack someone to stand before me forever. That's the same thing as saying your family 
will be in the kingdom. I think that's such a remarkable example. And it's such a wonderful hope that we have, because if we keep the commandments of our Heavenly Father, well, then that's the hope that is promised to us, that we might be able to stand before God forever in the kingdom. And so I thought I would leave you with that example of this incredible faithful family and one of the rays of hope that shines through in the prophecy of Jeremiah, despite the destruction that was going to be experienced in the nation of Judah at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar.